0: Chapter of Romans. While you're uh, turning there, let me just make this um, this little comment. Um, we as uh, as human beings are um, spiritual and material. We're body and soul, and uh, we we have these features, these aspects of our lives. We're thinkers. We have desires and longings, that that is, we have affections, and we're doers, we do things. And and preaching seeks, over the course of time, to touch the totality of who we are as human beings. Sometimes sermons tend to focus more on, on the doing part of things. Sometimes sermons, I think, fairly frequently, should drill down into our hearts and kind of expose our desires and kind of get at what's going on in our souls. Um, and sometimes sermons appeal more to or or deal more with our understanding. And that's that's sort of the focus here this morning. This is one of those sermons that is an attempt to kind of get back into the Apostles' head so we can understand how this letter is unfolding, so we can then, in the next couple of weeks as we get deeper into chapter 4, we can sort of tease out some of these other things. So I just... I just offer that to you as a kind of a word of introduction. We're going to be dealing with trying to understand a little bit more fully what Paul is arguing here, what he's trying to persuade these listeners of in this letter. So um, I don't think it's daunting. I'm just kind of giving you a heads up. That's what we're going to be doing uh, this morning as we look at these first few verses of Romans 4. So with that, uh, let me have you Follow along with me as we read Romans chapter 4, beginning at verse 1, reading through verse 12. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We say that faith was counted to Abram as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abram had before he was circumcised. Let's pray. Lord, uh, help us to, to think your thoughts after you and especially help us to see, as we've seen repeatedly, help us to see that you have done for us what it was impossible for us to do for ourselves. You've given us a righteousness and a standing in your presence as a free gift received with the open hands of faith. Help us to see it and rest in it this day in Jesus name. Amen. You may be seated. So we're we're coming back now to Romans and uh, the first thing I think that I'd want to point out to you as we move on from chapter 3 to chapter 4 is simply this just Remember that the chapter and verse divisions that you find in the scriptures were added much later. They were added long after each of the individual books were written, uh, added long after um, the canon of the church was recognized and accepted uh, by the church. Um, and I mention that to you because it's very easy if you're in a like a daily Bible reading thing and you get to the end of chapter 3 of Romans, you, you can you can sort of, you kind of subtly fall into this trap of thinking that Paul has concluded one thought and he's moving on to another. And that isn't what's happening here. The chapter and verse division right here is, is actually somewhat unfortunate because what Paul is doing in chapter four is actually enlarging upon what he has been talking about in verses 27 to 31 at the end of chapter three. Now just just really quickly, let's rehearse what's going on here. I've been saying to you over and over and over again, that the critical question, there are a whole lot of critical questions that a person has to ask himself or herself in the course of life, lots of important questions. But arguably, the most important question that any human being is ever gonna ask himself or herself is the question, how can I be right with God? And, and I like to kind of turn it around and, and put it this way, how can God be right with me? How can I be right with God? How can God be right with me? How can I stand in the presence of a God who is righteous? How can I be declared innocent? Remember, that's what justification is. It's one of these big, big, really important words in the Bible. Justification is to be declared innocent, and to put it positively, it's to be declared righteous. How can that happen? How can I be put right with God? How can God be right with me? How can I be accepted by Him? How can I stand in His presence? All of these questions are just ways of looking at this, this really, really critical question. And what Paul has been saying through the first two and a half chapters of this letter is that it is it is just impossible. It is simply impossible for a person to be accepted, to be declared innocent to be declared righteous in the presence of a God who is holy and righteous and just on the basis of works. That's the word that you keep hearing, on the basis of works or on the basis of obedience to the law. It is simply impossible that I could be accepted and declared innocent or declared righteous in the presence of a holy God on the basis of what I do because if I'm honest with myself whether it's the way i think about the world or the desires that i have in my heart or the manner in which those desires start to express themselves in the things that i do i've got to acknowledge i've got to acknowledge that i'm a sinner that i'm a sinner that i do sin because i am a sinner paul says in in at the end of uh this sort of first major section verse 20 of chapter 3 he says by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight no nobody nobody will be declared innocent in the presence of a holy god on the basis of what he does in fact here is what the law does and this is particularly directed at his jewish readers but it's really directed at all of us here is what any moral code does whether it's the moral code that God has given, beginning with the Ten Commandments and all of the exposition and application of the Ten Commandments across the whole of the rest of Deuteronomy, or a moral code that I construct for myself and which I believe is a proper and right guide by which I live. okay. On the one hand, we're talking about Jews. On the other hand, we're talking about Gentiles. Every one of us is one or the other. So whether it's the moral code that God has revealed or the moral code that I construct for myself, I've got to acknowledge that I fall short. What does the moral code reveal about me? That I don't keep it? That I can't keep it? That I fall short of it? That's what Paul's saying in verse 20. Through the law comes knowledge of sin. That's his concluding statement in this first section of this letter. And then he goes on, in this, just this magisterial paragraph, verses 21 to 26 of Romans 3, he goes on to tell us, having, having in multiple ways sought to persuade us, convince us, encourage us to come to terms with the truth about ourselves, that we need something we don't have. In these verses 21 to 26, this, this powerful, packed, densely packed paragraph he shows us what it is that God has done for us. That God has done for us. Verse 21. There is a righteousness that comes from God. It has been made manifest. It has been revealed. Where is that righteousness to be found? It is testified to in the Law and the Prophets. Verse 21 of chapter 3. But it is found in Jesus Christ. He is the righteousness That I need. He possesses the righteousness that I lack. And Jesus Christ is this substitute who, by his death on the cross, where he satisfies the justice of God, where all of my sin, having been taken away from me, is given to him. He suffers as my substitute, satisfies the justice and wrath of God, taking away my sin, my guilt. So there is righteousness, which Jesus secures, and there is his death by which he atones for sin. He dies. He dies suffering the wrath of God in the place of sinners. And then verses 27 to 31, Paul just pushes and pushes and pushes and presses that this gift of salvation, this gift of being declared innocent in the presence of God, being declared positively righteous is received by faith. It's received by faith. That's what he says. What becomes of boasting? Remember several weeks ago? The gospel changes my view of me. The gospel humbles me. The gospel strikes pride at the heart. There is no place for boasting. But the one who is justified, verse 28, is justified by faith apart from works of the law. This justification, this declaration of innocence, this declaration of being positively righteous is by grace offered as a gift and received with the empty hands of faith. Now if you're a Jew listening to this, hearing Paul preach these things, and there were there were many many Jewish listeners hearing this letter read living in Rome and they were attracted to these churches that had grown up because the gospel had come to Rome. There were Jews who were being persuaded That the gospel really was true. People will ask, they've asked me through the years many times, why didn't the Jews embrace Jesus? You need to remember that they did. (laughs) They did. The first 3,000 converts to the Christian faith were Jews. Acts chapter 2. The next 5,000 that were admitted were largely Jews. When Paul went in his missionary journeys preaching the gospel, read through Acts, he went to synagogues first. He preached the gospel there, and people believed. Not all of the Jews did, but the first converts, the folks who made up the churches, were Jewish believers. And there are, there are inquirers, there are interested people in these churches in Rome. And as Paul preaches this gospel of justification by faith alone, based on the finished work of Christ, received by faith, the Jewish listeners, particularly, are going to be asking a question something like this. And this is where we're, we're trying to get back into this letter and understand what's going on, understand what it is that Paul's doing as he continues to raise these questions. He's, you see this in the text. He does it in verse 1. What shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? He's asking a question. And in doing that, he's anticipating the objections that would be raised by the people who were listening to this letter being read in these churches in Rome. And this is is the kind of thing that they're thinking. They're thinking, okay, Paul, this is all well and good for Gentiles. This is all well and good for Gentiles. They don't have the law. We do. They aren't descendants of Abraham. We are. They don't have circumcision. We do. We have our ethnicity. We have the law. We have this religious practice. If you are saying that we are accepted by God in the same way as Gentiles, apart from ethnicity, apart from keeping the law, apart from practicing circumcision, you're going to have to prove it to us. You're going to have to prove it. You can't just declare it. You're going to have to prove it. And you're going to have to prove it from the scriptures, meaning the Old Testament scriptures. You're going to have to show us, Paul, that this is the way that God justifies the ungodly. That's the thinking, the reasoning that the apostle is responding to as we press on into chapter 4, and that is exactly what he does. Where does he take them to prove this point, to prove... That acceptance with God, that justification, that being declared innocent, that being declared righteous is not on the basis of law. It's not on the basis of religious practice. It's not on the basis of ethnicity, but it is something God does for us received by faith. Where does he go? He goes right to the father of the nation. He goes to Abraham. And then he draws in the king of the nation, to provide supporting evidence for his contention that justification is the gift of God by his grace received by faith. That's what he does in these verses. He appeals to Abraham. Now, and that's in these verses as well as the reference to David. Now, you, you want to remember that Abraham receives so much attention in this chapter because... Abram is the father of the nation. He's the model of what it is supposed to look like to walk this life of faith. And so as Paul appeals to Abraham, refers to Abraham, he's going to show two things. He's going to show that salvation is always the same. The way of salvation is always the same. It is always by grace. It is not by works. And it is always received by faith. Okay? So first, the way always has been and always will be. The way of salvation is always by grace. And Abram becomes the prime example. Abram, the one the Jews looked to. Verse 1 of chapter 4. What did Abraham discover in this regard? In what regard? With respect to the things that he's been talking about. With respect to this matter of justification by faith. What did Abraham, who is our forefather? Abraham, according to the flesh. Abram, our ancestor, our first ancestor. What did Abram discover? Meaning, what did he learn? What did he come to understand about that? And Paul answers the question in verse 3, in referring to Genesis, chapter 15. Verse 3, Abram believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. This is what the scripture says, the specific scripture in Genesis 15. Abram believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. Now, what's going on at that particular point in the unfolding story of redemption? What's going on at that particular point in Abram's life? Well, if you go back to Genesis 15, Abram has been walking with God for a number of years. We don't know how many years. But Abram was called by God from Ur of the Chaldees. That's Mesopotamia. It was a place of unbelief. The gospel was not there. Abram was... Perfectly content to be living in Ur of the Chaldees. He was perfectly content to be worshiping the gods of his fathers. And God called Abram out of Ur of the Chaldees and brought him to himself. And in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, made promises to Abram. Promised Abram that he would make him a great nation. Meaning he would give him many, many descendants. He would be the father of a great nation. That's what his name Means, in fact, Abram means the father of many. So he's promised descendants. He's promised that he would be a great nation. And he has promised, and this is critical, he has promised that in him, through him, through Abram, not only would he be blessed and not only would his descendants be blessed, but all the nations of the world would be blessed. All of the nations of the world would be blessed. And so years have passed from Genesis 12 to Genesis 15 Abram becomes wealthy God does bless him God does prosper him but he has no heir he has no son and in Genesis 15 God takes Abram out of his tent it says Abram look at the stars in the heavens count them if you can consider the sand on the seashore count the the grains of sand on the seashore, if you can, I tell you, I promise you, I will give you descendants more numerous than the stars in the heaven or the sand on the seashore. And God says that to him in connection with Abram raising the question about the heir. I don't have an heir. Somebody else is going to inherit my my blessings, my wealth, my house. And God says, no, no, one who comes from your own flesh will inherit these blessings and this house. You will Have a son. And when you go through the rest of Genesis 15, a passage we looked at, I think, several weeks ago, it is in Genesis 15, where God, through a a rite that would have been very familiar to Abraham, makes it very clear to Abraham that God himself is going to take it upon himself to fulfill all of the obligations of this covenant relationship that God has established with him. So God makes the promise. He repeats the promise. He gives him a sign in this ritual that he performs in Genesis 15, that God himself is going to ensure that these blessings will, in fact, come to him. And in that connection, Abram believes God. He believes God. It's the same word that's used, it's a Hebrew word, but the same Greek word, the word that translates the Hebrew word, is the same word that's used throughout Romans 3. He had faith. He trusted God. That what God said would, in fact, come to pass. Now, let's be real clear about what it is that Abram is believing. He's believing a lot of things. He's believing that he will be blessed with an heir, he's believing that he will become a great nation. He's believing that in this one, this heir who comes, all of the nations of the earth will be blessed. When he believes, he's believing the whole thing. He's believing everything that God has promised. And what is right at the heart of God's promise is the promise of a Messiah. He is believing in a Messiah who will come. The New Testament makes this really, really clear. In John chapter 8, I'm just going to give you... A couple of verses here, passages to look at. In John chapter 8, Jesus is having a very contentious argument with some Jews. They had believed at a certain level, but they had doubts and Jesus to prove to them that he is who he says he is refers to Abram. This is a really interesting passage. And he says near the end of that chapter, verse 58, Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and he rejoiced because of it abram looked down the corridors of history abram looked back all of these descendants that would come to him abram looked beyond the blessings that god poured out upon him abram looked beyond the land that god promised he would give him he looked beyond all of that to a particular person a messiah who would come and Jesus says I'm the one I'm the one Abram was looking for I'm the promised seed Abram saw my day he believed in it and he rejoiced because of it Paul says in Galatians chapter 3 verse 8 that the scriptures foreseeing that God would justify the gentiles preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. We think of the gospel as something being introduced after the resurrection of Jesus. Paul is saying the gospel was preached to Abraham. What's the gospel? It's the promise of a redeemer. It's the same promise made to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3. The day is coming When a deliverer, a savior, a messiah will come and he will overturn evil and he will eradicate evil from the realm and he will deliver people from their bondage. That promise gets unpacked across the whole of scripture. Adam and Eve were looking for Jesus. When God clothed them with those animal skins in Genesis 3, they were figuratively, symbolically being clothed with the righteousness of the one who would come. And the substitute that died so that they could be clothed figuratively, symbolically is pointing ahead to the greater sacrifice that would be offered for the guilt, not only of Adam and Eve, but for the guilt and shame of countless hundreds of thousands and millions. The gospel was preached. To Abram, Galatians 3.16 explains very clearly, very directly, that the promise made to Abram, the promise of an offspring, was Christ, was the Messiah. So what is Paul arguing for in these things? What 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 is this unfolding thing that he's doing? What is he illustrating here? Well, it's these two things. He wants these Jews to understand that whether you're on the other side of the cross or on this side of the cross, it is all about what God has done by his grace, received by faith. If you're on the other side of the cross, it's the Messiah in promise form. If we're on this side of the cross, we're looking back to the fulfillment of everything that God had promised across the pages of the Old Testament right? This story is a seamless unfolding story. Don't chop it up into pieces. Don't cut it in half. Think of it in terms of promise and fulfillment. And Abram was looking down the corridors of history, believed God about that promise and God declared him righteous, declared him innocent in his sight. What does it mean to be declared? Or what what does the text mean when it says this was counted to Abram as righteousness? It means to credit to someone's account. It means to impute or to reckon or to consider. All of those words are used to translate this idea. So here is Abram, long before Jesus comes, looking down the corridor of history, Believing the promise of God, believing that God would do this thing. He believes it, and God does for him on that side of the cross exactly what God does for anyone on this side of the cross who believes it as well, who receives it as well. He justified him. He declared him innocent. He declared him righteous. Not on the basis of anything he did. And this is why Paul elaborates all of this stuff through the rest of this chapter. In these verses 9 through 12, you see he, he focuses attention upon this business of circumcision. And God says, no, he did it before circumcision. He did it before the law. He did it before Abram even had descendants. It's not about ethnicity. It's not about law. It's not about a religious practice. It is about what God does in sending a Messiah to secure righteousness and to remove sin. Blessings and gifts to be received as gifts given by God. So it always has been. It is now. And it always will be that God justifies the ungodly by grace as a gift based upon the finished work of the Messiah. Plus nothing. Plus nothing. Not even your believing. Your believing is is imperfect. Do you ever think about that? When you believe, you believe imperfectly. When Jesus died for Mike Malone... Jesus didn't just die for the stupid things that Mike Malone does. When Jesus died, he didn't just die for the stupid things that Abram did, like turning his wife over to a pagan king because he didn't want to get himself in trouble. Jesus doesn't just die for David when David commits adultery with Bathsheba. Jesus dies for my imperfect faith as well. He dies for the whole thing. It is what God does to secure for me a standing in his present, in his presence as innocent and righteous. On both sides of the cross, Abram is looking down the corridor of history to the cross, we're looking back down the corridor of history to the cross. We are justified declared innocent, declared righteous in the presence of a holy God on the basis of the finished work of Christ plus nothing received by faith as a gift given by a gracious God. When you come to this table in a few moments, you come as pardoned sinners, forgiven, free, not facing any threat of condemnation, not because of what you do, but solely and completely because of what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you that no matter where we stand, the way you save is always the same. It always is an expression of your grace. It always is a function of your mercy. It is always a gift given and received by faith. I pray for myself and I pray for these people that we would see it, see it clearly, and rest in it a finished work to which nothing, nothing need be added. Lord, this is amazing, it is staggering. It is hard to understand. Please, by your spirit, enable us to get our minds and our hearts and our wills around this, that you might be praised. As we prepare for this table, O oh Lord, would you come and prepare us? We ask in Jesus' name, amen.